So I thought I was the queen of Airbnb. Check the profile. I visited all the places. However, how can I truly be a queen if I have never been a host? Didn't even think about it, y'all. It's time to think about it because my place is cute. Why not share? I know. I got you thinking about it now. All right. Well, don't think about it. Be about it. Find out how you can be a host at airbnb.com slash host. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, it's Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So, check out Discover Cashback Debit a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cash back isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Suprema, su, su, Suprema Roll Call. 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 What's love and crew? Yeah. Next hour you stuck with? Yeah. Sophia Chain? Yeah. Ain't nothing up with? <laughs> Suprema, su, su, Suprema Roll Call. Suprema. Suprema Roll Call. My name is Sugar. Yeah. Good afternoon. Yeah. From the baddest. Yeah. Jew in this room. Uh, Roll Call. Suprema. Suprema. Suprema Roll Call. Suprema. Suprema Roll Call. It's Laia. Yeah. And the baddest bitch. Yeah. You know why me and Sophia bad? Why? Because we both speak French. Roll call. <laughs> Suprema. I want the proof of that. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. My name's Boss Bill. Yeah. If you're wondering who. Yeah. On my grind to be. Yeah. The baddest Bill in the room. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. My name is Sophia. Yeah. And I'm the baddest bitch in the room. Yeah. And I think it's really important yeah. that you understand it's. Come on. I'm not allowed to curse because I was going to Suprema I'm allowed to. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Wait, is this a first for QLS? Were you about to give a dissertation? I, no, I was about to curse. Oh, you can yeah, do you, that. You're allowed to. Come oh, on. I'm allowed to curse. Yes, yes. Oh, okay, good to know, because you... Well, you know, sound effects for you. That was beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of Questlove Supreme. I'm your emperor, Questlove. <laughs> emperor? What? Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. uh, with me today is my uh, Supreme team. We have uh, Blue Belt expert Shogun oh, okay. Sugar Steve. Hello. Yeah. And we got uh, our Red Belt twin tongue uh, sword, <laughs> Sensi Laia, over here. And of course, uh, the man who runs it all, keeps us in line, Black Belt Boss Bill. Yo, where's my killer tape at? 
Uh, <laughs> 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 All right, so for me, a lot of my favorite episodes that we do at Questlove Supreme and that we conduct, my favorite ones are always the behind-the-scenes episodes in which we kind of poke and prod and dissect the process from the perspective of the person who's usually behind the scenes, you know, the person that keeps the wheels turning behind the scenes, not necessarily in front of the camera or on the microphone. So uh, I would say that Sophia Chang is definitely a legend in these circles. For the past 30 plus years, she's been near and dear to the soundtracks of our lives, especially that of the Shaolin variety. Her expertise and knowledge was key in the prime days of keeping uh, the Wu-Tang Caravan going, be it A&R, managing, building labels, and management. Uh, Sophia Chang and her legendary Gucci fedora, which is actually not here today. It's there, but I have the head. I have the headphones okay. on. Okay, I was about to say that. That's your trademark. <laughs> she's basically seen it all. And now she's ready to share her story. Her exclusive Audible memoir entitled "The Baddest Bitch in the Room" navigates and takes you on a journey through one of the most creative periods of music timeline. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest on Questlove Supreme, Sophia Chang. Yes. Yay! Thank you. Very glad to so see you happy. today. You're, so happy to yo, be here. Thank I'm you. Kind of jealous. Like you, you're killing it with the merch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I <laughs> released five books, and I think that I just made like one T-shirt. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of. I've been kind of scheming on this jacket, even though you know I'm not. Yeah, the Audible bitch made in the room, me this but. jacket. They made me another one too that I haven't even worn yet. Audible. I gotta yep. talk to Audible. There you go. Let's talk to Audible. <laughs> Can I get a jacket? <laughs> see what is that on the back? It says, "What mother lover, hustler warrior." Indeed. Ah. Mother love a hustler warrior. Motherfucking okay. right. I'll see that. <laughs> um, well, I'll I'll start at the top asking, why did you feel at this point in your career, now is the time to share your story? And what do you think we can learn from your journey? Uh, so, Amir, I'm sure you were told this for years, too. Uh, for years, people said to me, you got to write a book. You got to write a mm -hmm. book. You know, because of our proximity to what mm -hmm. we do. You're actually an artist. I was artist approximate. And I just couldn't wrap myself around how that was not an exercise in narcissism. Right. And, you know, what am I going to do? Talk about, oh, I hung out here. I did this. And I was I, that's not interesting to mm -hmm. me. But when I started working at Universal in 2014 and I took on a number of mentees like you, Bill, straight out of college, 22. Right. Mm -hmm. And they were all women. And I understood that my vast and varied experience, particularly as a working mother, as a working single mother, could be instructive. Then I was like, OK, if I can be of service to people. Then I'll step into the spotlight. But before that, I simply wasn't interested. So you, you just wanted to strictly stay behind the scenes? And I did. I did. I was, all, you know, don't look at the one behind the curtain. I, I skirted the red carpet. I never wanted to be in the interviews. I never wanted any of that. Um, and now, you know, I'm, I'm going to be everywhere. But uh, <laughs> in terms of what people can glean from my memoir, I mean, what I say is that my memoir is for anybody who ever felt undervalued underheard, underseen, anybody who said yes in the face of so many no's, right. you know, anybody who kind of pushed up against whatever confines were placed on them and any boxes that were placed on them and anybody who dared to tell their story. And the lessons that I hope people can glean is that I think that what you will gather is that I'm pretty fearless. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, I have always had a middle-class safety net, so it gives you a privilege to be a little bit more fearless than others. Um, but 
I got fired. I got hired. I quit many, many times over. My, you know, my LinkedIn profile is like reading War and Peace. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's just a matter of, I think it's really important to pursue your passion. And for first gen Asian immigrants, mm-hmm. that is really not something that we're taught to do. Right. To pursue your passion. Exactly. We are so it, it is so narrowly flight. prescribed. Right. Lawyer, doctor, scholar, engineer. Right. And if you want to stray from this path, it's very, very difficult. And I understand it now as a mother, but also looking at my parents and thinking of the sacrifices that they made as immigrants, leaving everything they knew behind and coming to Canada. In my case, they don't really want to hear me say, I want to be a sculptor. Right? right, because in their mind they're like, "Well, hold up. we didn't leave everything we know and we love, so that you could go do this profession that we see as kind of unsafe in a way." Right? Uh, are you the only child, or do you have? Siblings? I have an older brother. Okay. I, have an, I have an older brother. Did he follow the the, the family? He mode did. And- he did, but he's also extremely passionate about it. My brother is Hisok Chang. He's a tenured English professor at Vassar. He's the tenth smartest people I know, and that's his passion. Mm-hmm. So French lit was my passion until I heard the message, and I went, "Hold on, <laughs> hang on really? a second. Yeah, I was curious about how French lit became your passion. I was reading about that, and I was like, "Is it Canada? Uh, well, Vancouver? Well, you live in Vancouver, sure. yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. but yeah. that 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 still doesn't mean that that becomes your passion to study in college and speak it fluently because you are." Uh, well, I, 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 what I will say is that I'm fluent in speaking English with a French accent, right. which is far more interesting and much more fun. Uh, you know, I grew up in a family of academics. My father, God rest his soul, was a mathematician. You know, again, my brother became a professor. My mother was a librarian. So I grew up in a household where everybody was reading, you know, and my parents were reading the classics in English, which I think is extraordinary. And again, because it was just always assumed that I would follow suit it didn't occur to me to think outside of that paradigm. So that was the suit that was, yeah. that was within the suit. Right. So now do they understand? Well, I know your father isn't with us anymore, but your mom, does she know that you're a pioneer? Because like you said, you, you said you one of the, the first Asian woman in hip hop. That's a pioneer because there are a lot now. Uh, I wonder Not if she a lot, would, but. I, I, I don't think my mother would describe me as a pioneer. <laughs> and to be honest with would you. Would you give your mom this jacket? <laughs> yes, would she wear it? No. Um, for 32 years, up until right now, when she can actually tell her friends that her daughter wrote a book, my mother couldn't tell you what I did. There's no way. They're, they're, like, she Yo. wouldn't understand what it means. Like, what does it mean to do A&R? My mother was born in right. North Korea in 1932. You know what I'm saying? Like, she's not. Did she, she meet the know. guys? Like, what it was the moment when she met Wu? The- she did. <laughs> and they were all really gracious. And, she, yeah, she met a bunch of the artists that I managed. Yeah. Dude, like, I, I know people don't understand. They kind of collectively eye roll. Whenever I, whenever I mention that it took me two albums to tell my dad that I was in the roots. Like, yeah. <laughs> but it's... That that fear of wanting to disappoint your parents or not wanting to disappoint your parents and, you know, like my dad was busting his ass since yes. I was five to put yes. me in private school. Yes. And, like to go his route. Yes. And so for you to like sneak out of it to do something you want to do is hard. So like when did you – well, first of all, with, with Vancouver – what was the environment like before? I know that your come to Jesus moment was hearing the message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. But before then, what was your life generally like in Vancouver? So it was very comfortable. You know, Vancouver is beautiful and it's green and lovely. Again, middle class, went to went to public schools. But I was very much 
a yellow girl in a white world who wanted to be white. No question. I was born in 1965. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm 10, right, and I'm coming of age, so to speak, everything I see in the media, whether it's television, film, commercials, Mm -hmm. or magazines, is whiteness. Every, Every representation of beauty and power and sex appeal is white. And so I wanted to be white. And to be frank, I kind of wonder... How does a person of color growing up in that not want to be white, right? And as I share this story, I have had so many people say to me, I felt the exact same way. And so I was, you know, I'm watching these shows and these movies and I, yeah, it was, um, you know, I grew up getting called chink, Jap, gook for sure. I got, you know, Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, look at these, all of that stuff because racism then was just simply not as codified. Mm -hmm. And so kids would be in your face. And the thing that I learned very early on, too, was you're learning this from somewhere. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And you're probably learning some of it from your parents. Maybe they're not teaching you that charming little song, but they are somehow instilling in you um, or rather not instilling in you the, the, you know, the virtue that you shouldn't be a shitty person <laughs> and judge right. people by, you know, and make prejudgments about, about somebody based on their skin. So you were just in an isolated community. You weren't and you weren't amongst like your family and there was never, I'll get my cousins to fuck you up or none of that shit. Yeah, or. no, it wasn't, it wasn't really like that. Um, we weren't that isolated because my parents were part of a burgeoning Korean community, but we were all immigrants. Okay. Everybody's parents spoke with accents. Right. We all ate food that looked and smelled and tasted different. All of our parents had, quote unquote, funny names. So there were all of these things, all of these markers that clearly indicated that we were other. Right. And the world never stopped telling us that we were other, whether it was making fun of my parents' names, again, saying something about our food. Thank you, white people, for now acknowledging that kimchi is a superfood and that you think you, think <laughs> you, invo- you, think you in- invented bone broth. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> you know, all of, the, all of these things that kind of diminished, right, who, uh, who we were. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about visibility and erasure. Right. And I think that any of us who live on the margins – understand what it is like to be systematically and institutionally erased. And so in, in kind of denying my parents' history, their heritage, their culture, and making fun of it, to me you are diminishing and you are erasing them. And I, certainly I didn't have this language when I was a child. Right. But I really felt that I was, uh, that I would, you know, in, in making somebody feel other, you are necessarily making them feel lesser. I see. Was Sophia your birth name or was it adopted? That's a good question. No. Um, so everybody in my extended family has a Korean name. I was the first person in my family born outside of Korea. And my father, chose to name me after a Polish mathematician. And that was a conscious decision on his part. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So uh, not many people know this about Vancouver. Um, besides having one of the best, most adventurous ice cream parlors of all time, shout out to La Casa Gelato, over 500 flavors. They didn't pay for that plug. Sorry. But, <laughs> you know. Good to know. All my ice cream Send us free. some free ice cream. <laughs> um not many people know that the national anthem of hip hop 
was created in Vancouver in Mushroom Studios. Um, the incredible bongo bands Apache was actually created in Mushroom Studios in Vancouver. Holy shit, I didn't know that. That's amazing. In Mushroom See, Studios, that's mo- amazing. The more you know. So, yeah, so for me, it's not shocking at all that your passion for hip-hop culture, because I'm sure that, you know, people, oh, Vancouver, how did you find that moment? But, yeah. you know, the, the national anthem of hip-hop yeah. Yeah. Was, was born there. So tell us about that moment where you heard the message. And, I, you know, for a lot of us that were around in real time, like, the message was definitely one of the, besides Rapper's Delight, to me, the message was one of the first, what I call, War of the Worlds moment. Uh-huh. Where you stare at the speaker uh-huh. and you're wondering, what the hell is this? Like, uh-huh. what was that experience like for you and how did that transform you? I want to talk about that and then I want to ask you about your experience. I'd be very curious to hear about your experience the first time you heard it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for me, uh, you know, all I'm seeing around me is whiteness and then I'm seeing yellowness because there are Asian immigrants there. There are lots of Chinese in Vancouver. Um, and then there are some brown folks, meaning South Asians, right? But I have no exposure to black folks and Latinx folks. Right. And again, all of the representations of people of color are coming through the media. And that at the time, and still largely is the case, is through the white male lens. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and I also wasn't, because I grew up in Vancouver, I'm listening to Top 40 radio. I am listening to white music. I have no exposure to this remarkably robust and rich tradition of gospel, R&B, jazz, none of that. I'm not exposed to any of it. So when I hear the message, I'm in 12th grade, there's this kid, Ray, this Greek kid, he, he loved music, and he brings this 12-inch record to school. We're in the lunchroom, um, we're, we're in this music room at lunchtime, and he, he puts on the record. Now, the thing that I always loved was dancing. Mm-hmm. And so, but I listened to disco, actually, right. to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I always loved dancing. And so immediately the beat hits me in the solar plexus, right? So I have a visceral response. And then I hear the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I just think, I, I, I don't even t- know what I was thinking, but I remember I found it so compelling. And in retrospect, when I think about it, I think it's because it's the first time, and again, I didn't have, certainly didn't have this language at 16, 17, that I heard people of color talk about themselves and represent their own world as opposed to white Hollywood saying this is what brown people, yellow people, black folks do, right? right. And, I, and, and also there was a sense of urgency and anger and pride that resonated with me really deeply because, again, being a yellow girl growing up in a white world who wants to be white, I didn't feel pride. I felt shame and embarrassment, right? Right. And so I hear the message and then I think, wow. And also I'm a French major, so I'm a literature major and I study poetry and I knew it was poetry. There was no part of me that was I, – I, I don't understand why people don't think it's poetry. I think it's poetry and I think it's literature. Mm-hmm. And then and – then, I see the Run DMC video for King of Rock. So I've only heard the message. And then I see King of Rock and I'm like, oh, oh my God. Right. You know, arms B-boy crossed, stance, yeah. you know, yeah, the feet B-boy apart. And, and just this, exactly, the B-boy stance and just this claiming of me. And this is who I am. And I will not let anybody else define me, nor will I let anybody else tell you who I am. 
I'm fucking telling you who I am. Right. That was revelatory. But I, I'd love to ask you, because the message is the first song that I heard, right? right. Certainly not the first hip-hop song that you heard. What struck you as being different about it? About the message? Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so up until that point, um, of course, like, I was eight when Rappers Alike came out, so mm-hmm. that was just, what the hell is this? Uh-huh. And the second time I had that moment was, not many people write about um, the adventures of Grandmaster Flash and the Furies, uh, the adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. Uh-huh. Basically, the first record that demonstrates cutting. Okay. So I'm trying to decipher how this noise is made uh-huh. and... Can I do this on my dad's thing? Oh, dad! You know, <laughs> whippings uh, and all that shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but with the message, stop scratching my Isaac Hayes records, boy. Right, I I would say that um, sitting in my dad's car and it came on the radio. Oh, okay, and uh-huh. even he had to take a pause. But like, but. Everything in that song hit me because I didn't know none of what none of those street terms were. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what a pimp was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like my six year old cousin had to tell eleven year old me. Like <laughs> I was like she had to get a pip like last night in the pips. <laughs> she couldn't make it on her own. <laughs> she couldn't make it. On her own. <laughs> yeah, but literally everything like you know through that girl in front that of the train. train I'm like, wait, they're pushing people on the train platforms and the midnight train to Georgia platform. <laughs> But to me, to me, the last minute of that song when they got arrested, mm-hmm. yo, that scared the shit out of me. And then mm-hmm. that's that was that was a moment where I feel like the first father and son talk really happened, where my dad told me like, you know, that could be you, that that might be wow. your cousins, that could be them boys wow. on Forty Ninth Street. And just the whole, like, oh, man. you know, um, th- th- my first lecture about police came wow. because of that song. I was like, wait, why, why are they getting arrested? And wow. what, what's what's going That's on here? Beautiful. Like, you don't remember the ending? Like, what is that, a yeah, gang? Yeah, get yeah. in the car, get in yeah, the car. Yeah. I didn't do nothing. No. Yeah. Like, I, I wasn't old enough to understand when Stevie Wonder did that on Living for the City. Mm-hmm. But hearing that, that definitely... I'll say the last minute of the message is was such just a paradigm shift in my life. Mm-hmm. That's where I was taught mm-hmm. taught fear the police wow. and whatever you do, like st- straight up, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So yeah, that that affected me in ways that I can't even imagine. But I definitely, hope, I my hope father's they know son how they talk- impacted people. Huh? I really hope they know how they impacted different oh, people. Yeah, lives. I tell them all the time when you know. Whenever I see them, how wow, that is. That's that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. It really seems like, uh, from so many of the interviews that we've done here, that the message is like the the equivalent of the Beatles' uh, Ed Sullivan performance. You know, the people who saw be, that, yeah. or people who heard that, that's when their life changed. Well, I don't, it's I don't also even fr- know what that means. It, well, I mean, Ed Sullivan. In that way, I don't. Ed Sullivan. I mean, TV. I mean, the way viral viralness is now with YouTube, like. Everyone watched the Ed Sullivan show on mm-hmm. Sunday nights mm-hmm. at 9 p.m. on CBS. Mm-hmm. So if you had the platform of being on the Ed Sullivan show, um, your career was made. And mm-hmm. the Beatles made their American debut on the Ed Sullivan show. And everything changed after that. Like, I don't think my parents was watching that. Did they have a television? Yeah. Were they born? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> you just want to be difficult, don't you? Like, no, I just don't think. I just, I don't think that that was forever. Well, I mean, here's the thing. My relationship with the Beatles. No shade to you, Steve. I was just saying. No, that no, no, but also. No, no, no. Actually, I'm kind of with you. My relationship with the Beatles actually. I knew all the black artists who covered the Beatles before mm. I even right. got into the Beatles. Right. Mm-hmm. So it took a lot of unpacking at the age of 15 and realized, like, oh, Gladys Knight and the Pips didn't do that song first. And Bill Withers didn't do this song first. And mm-hmm. wait, Stevie Wonder didn't do We Can Work It Out? And what? not for nothing, our households were different in a way. That's like, my, I asked my mom, you wasn't at Woodstock? She was like, girl, what the fuck? No. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So. <laughs> No, I, I get it. But, it, I mean, the Beatles definitely impacted a lot of music lovers, not just their their yes. target demographic. Yes. But, you know, you were even if you were black, you were watching Ed Sullivan's show. Mm-hmm. Listen, black representation is essential. If I hadn't seen and heard certain black women in radio... I wouldn't be in radio. Women like Robin Breeden, Candy Shannon, Michelle Wright, Deanna Williams. Women owning radio stations like Kathy Hughes. Listen, the next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. Word. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Each episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Smurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Here are a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so I feel silly. Because as much traveling as I do, and as many Airbnbs that I stay in, because that's the only way I travel, I really have never considered my own space. I mean, think about it. What if you can make money for your next vacation while you're on vacation? And I know what you're thinking. You're like, my house is just not fancy enough. I just can't do the things. You're sleeping on your space. I'm sleeping on my space. Yes, I'm talking to myself. And I really don't even have to use my whole place. I could just Airbnb a room. I know how this works. Because again, I use Airbnb. Duh. I mean, just think about it. Most of us that use Airbnb are only using it for 50% of its power. We're spending the money, but we're not making the money. What if we could do both? Whoa. Mind-blowing. And your home really might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, guys, it's Steve Cavino from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck. 
like a rugged half-ton tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Um, so how, when did you make your move to America? Like, I was, uh, I was 22, and I was literally writing out my graduating essay, and I went straight to the airport. I skipped graduation. We That's were just talking, I. Bill and I were just talking about this. What is I up with that? I was so anxious to get back to New York. So I have to, I have to give a little bit of context. So as a French major, first of all, living in Vancouver, I knew I wanted to break out of Vancouver. And as a French major, mais bien sûr c'est Paris, right? Of course it's oui, going to oui. be Paris. <laughs> and then I went to Paris, and I met the French. And I was like, oh. No, I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. And then in, in my final year of college, I came to New York and I met Joey Ramone. I thought he was Johnny. I called him Johnny. Joey, God rest his soul. And I had I had heard the message. I had visited New York and I knew, oh, okay, this is where I want to be. As a French would say, j'étais comme poisson dans l'eau, right? Yeah, I, was like a, I was like a, a, like a fish to water. So yes. when I moved here, um, I stayed with a legendary rock critic named Legs McNeil and his girlfriend, and they introduced me. They, she got me a job working at Paul Simon, and then I kind of— In 86, 87? In 87, and then so I— So post-Graceland? Exactly on the—you're so— scold- God, you, are, you really are like this. How do you keep it on your head? Uh, I, work a, yeah. I work with these guys. Um, yeah, so it, it was, he's coming off the Worldwide Graceland Tour. Okay. Yeah. So do you have a regular job during this time? Because I'm trying to figure out, you said. So my regular job <laughs> is I'm the assistant to his tour managers coming off of Graceland. Before, before Paul Simon, like how I you eat. I, I think I might have had me? like, I had a little job working at a studio. Um, but also at that time, yeah. New York was not as expensive. Okay. When me and my friends talked, so this is in the late 80s, early 90s, right? When me and my friends talk about it, where we lived in that time, none of us could afford to live there now. Right. No fucking way. What part of? So I was living, well, I lived on the Upper West Side with Columbia students for a while, but then I lived downtown at 14th and 7th, oh, and then cool. I lived at the Archives, which is this really beautiful white glove b- building, elevator doorman building in the West Village. Not a shot could I afford to live there now. Not a shot. I mean, when I was when I was coming Give me up a number. in New York, Come on, Sophie. Nobody, <laughs> nobody lived. Nobody lived in Brooklyn. Sure as fuck, nobody lived in Queens. And now all of my friends live in Brooklyn and Queens because we can't afford Manhattan anymore. Like nobody can afford the city anymore. So, it, I mean, you know, I can't I, afford the apartment. I moved <clears throat> to Brooklyn in yeah. two thousand two. Yeah, I no, can't afford that apartment. Now. It's really tough. So, but there are also three of us living in a three hundred and sixty square foot studio. <clears throat> But we were like in our early twenties, and who gives a shit? It was probably like a hundred dollars. So what was the yeah. what was the environment like back then? Because it, I would imagine that mid late eighties was more that was post Danceteria. So yes, like the that's right. the first era of downtown New York scene. So what was the the scene into? Um, so what was really amazing about the scene at the time was that it was really small. And I'm not going to say insular because it wasn't insular. It was small and it was focused, 
but it was also very inclusive. And we were all at the same clubs. So you had DJs, MC, graph artists, B-boys, all there. But you also had managers, A&R, publicists, agents, attorneys. I mean, you had every single sector of the industry there because in 1987, hip-hop is still a relatively nascent industry. Okay. Right? And so, and again, it's localized and it's centralized. And you had DJs like Red Alert, you know, and we would go Anywhere where Red was spinning. You had Clark spinning. We would go anywhere that Clark was spinning. What clubs would you go to? So there were there were different clubs. There was a there was a moving club called there was Payday mm-hmm. and it was these three promoters. It was Moxie. Chuck, Beaver, and Patrick Moxie. Moxie yeah. And they would they, they would move around and they they started to name so they named the clubs after chocolate bars. So there was Payday, there was a hundred grand. I oh. can't <laughs> and okay. this, right, so they were named after a bunch of uh, chocolate bars, and they they could roam. Now, this was at a time where you could do this. No way could you do this now. Right. Not a shot. Right, like I live down in the Lower East Side, and I'm pretty sure that one of the clubs that I went to back in the day was housed in one of the high schools. Like they rented out high school auditoriums, they rented out um, abandoned like Chinese restaurants and stuff like that. And it was so amazing because again, this is before the internet. There's how no word get out. Yeah, how and, would... and we would there would they would hand out flyers, and then we would just all call each other and leave mm-hmm. messages on each other's answering machines. Google it, and we would you know we would just make sure that we were all there. And there was a feeling of community because we were all there for the music. This is where records were broken. Clark Kent single-handedly broke Color Me Bad's I Want to Sex You Up. Sex You Up. Mm-hmm. I remember being there. I think it was actually Diddy's house when Puffy had a club uh, over here on 54th Street. And, you know, none of us had heard the song. Literally none of us had heard the song. He had a white label. And the opening strains come on. And, you know, you're on the dance floor and you're dancing and then you just stop because you don't know the record. Mm-hmm. And the record came on and then it, and then the B came in and we were like, oh, shit. And years later, at tw- in 2014 at Universal, I was in, the A&R, in an A&R doing A&R um, admin at Island. Sam, who was one of the members of Color Me Bad, said that they were in the club that night. And that was the first time they heard their record played. Sam, was that George Michael, Vanilla Ice, (laughs) Rick James, or the other one? Kenny G. Kenny G. (laughs) How did you know? (laughs) Because I used to be a Call Me Bad fan. I got got their two albums, bro. Yeah, two albums. Oh, Bill. They had two. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know they had two albums. Time and Chance was the second one. So, Time and Chance. (laughs) That one has some joints. Oh, my God. God That was my joint. So, so it was a really, really close, uh, it was a really, really close-knit community. And, you know, it was such y- a privilege gonna, to be... Y'all going to make me feel bad for liking Kobe. No, we're not. <laughs> wait, wait, time <laughs> out. I'm no, sorry. Wait, one, one, one side note. Do you know, right right before Fat Cat on Fantastic yeah, yeah, Volume 1... They're doing Time and Chance. They're yeah. talking about Time and Chance. Yeah. Time. <laughs> right, all right, so go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> but I'm it was sorry. Just... We are rabbit holing. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. But it's this beautiful community, and um, I was welcomed into the community, and I was embraced, and I'm really grateful for that. And that was a privilege because hip hop obviously was not of my making. You know, um, it was not my world, and yet hip hop was like, "Come in, Soph." And you know, the first people were Crazy Legs and DJ Scratch. The, really? At the, at the New Music Seminar. Yeah, Le- Legs has a story where he's like, "I'll never forget the first time I saw you. I was looking across, going." Who is that little Asian woman that knows all the words to Brand Nubian Step to the Rear? 
Oh shit! <laughs> right, right. Whoa, whoa, bro. <laughs> deep cuts. <laughs> so you were there, at, like I'll say, in the early '90s and night. 90- oh, see, that's the era. Yeah. Are the era that people mostly tell us about the show is like Latin Quarter and all that stuff, but kind of that SOBs period. Yeah. I don't hear a lot about, so I don't yeah. always wondered. LQ and all that predated me, for sure. I, did, I never went to Latin Quarter. I never went to Danceteria. Most of my friends, all certainly my friends who grew up in New York did. Um, so, But, you know, the other thing that's interesting about that era is that, so you have these small roaming clubs, right? But you also have mega clubs, and they're all gone. Palladium. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's a dorm. Tunnel. Tunnel. <laughs> the dorm? Right? The tunnel. Right. Limelight. These places were huge. You dared go to the tunnel? Yeah, I did. I did. At a certain point, though, I stopped because yeah. I think Chris Lighty, God rest his soul, I think Lighty was like, don't come, self. Dog, yeah. He was like, don't come. Can I ask you a question? I don't know if this is uncomfortable, but I'm just as I'm listening, I'm, because you are, to me, a pioneer in ways, um, because you were in the club, you knew all the lyrics and stuff like that, how did you navigate around the N-word and how did you realize that that was like a hot button because you're from Vancouver and there weren't, we weren't around to be like, well, this ain't cool and this is cool and... Because even before hip hop, I grew up knowing that even though I was called chink, jap, and gook, <laughs> I-, I knew that the N word, it's, it's used against people the way that those words were used against me. So even if it's in the lyrics and my favorite artists are saying it, it never felt right to me, ever. Because I do know it's that weird thing where it has been made, uh, it's, it's different than, in the, in the, than most slurs. Because it has sure. been made cool in a way. So right. that's why I was like, and other others have issues dealing with that. Like, I don't get it. It's so cool to say. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I can't. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what was, what was your first inside industry job as far as hip hop is concerned? Where did you first? It was the job doing A&R at Jive. So I met the captain, a.k.a. Sean Karasov, God rest his soul. Uh, he was doing A&R at Jive. He signed a trap called Quest. Oh. And he said, I'm moving to the West Coast because at the time the West Coast was had a burgeoning hip hop scene, right? He said, Sophie, I'm moving to I'm moving to LA. I think you should interview for my job. So I interviewed for his job with Barry Weiss, very, very, very smart president of Jive Records. Mm-hmm. And Barry gave me the job, although he did tell me, he said the second I walked in the door, he went, Oh, she'll never get the job. What? <laughs> what is Barry like? I I meet many people that work with him. What is he like as because really, I mean, Barry was, to me, he was almost Def Jam before Def Jam because he's the one that signed, like, Philly artists. Like, Short. he took the entire pop yes. art label and made it his own and all that yeah. stuff before, you know, Russell and Rick got established. What was he like? Just Barry, I think, I believe Barry is a Cornell grad. Uh, Barry is also the son of High Weiss, and High was also in the music business. And Barry is so smart. Mm. So smart. You know you're in in rooms with people and as soon as they start talking you go, "Oh, holy shit, you're so smart." He was all he is also one of the funniest people I know. Like literally if Barry was sitting here in 30 seconds, he could have me laughing. He did incredible impersonations. <laughs> he was amazing. Mm-hmm. As a boss, he could be pretty exacting. Um and you know, Barry, so there were all these trades back in the day. There's Billboard, but then there's Gavin, there's R&R, there's FMQB, there are all these trades, and all of these trades, many of them have local record sales reports, right? Barry would go through every single one, and if he saw that an artist sold 50 copies of a cassette in Kansas, he'd be like, call that person. 
So you're absolutely right. I mean, Barry signed short. I mean, not, not Barry, but, you know, Jive signed short. Yeah. They signed Spice One. You know, they had their tentacles out really far. And I think that was Barry's vision to understand really early on that hip hop would expand far beyond New York. So he, I loved working for Barry. I learned so much. Who did you, what artists uh, were you under? Did you sign anybody at Jive during your terrain? I signed Fushnikins, oh. Casual, Souls oh. of Mischief. Oh. I signed an amazing artist named Ms. Kilo from the West Coast, unfortunately. I left, and I, that, that didn't ever happen. So those are the artists Mr. that Society, I signed. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a memory. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Nerds. Brain trust. Yes, you're in a safe um, place. And then I worked with... Um, Tribe and Karis One and UGK and you know a, a bunch of other. I mean, they had an amazing roster. Yeah, they did. How did you guys? All right. So speaking of UGK, um, you know, kind of the the globalization or no, the the uh, not the globalization. Where I guess hip hop really going national. Nationalization. Yeah, sure. How how are you guys able to? Because even before Def Jam, again, you guys yeah. were first. Yeah. And going to other territories, not New York. Yeah. Signing artists, first with Philly, yeah, with Jeff and Will yeah. and and Steady B and Schooly, and then expanding out. So, what was it about UGK and Spice One and well, Too Short and wasn't Volume Ten also? No, 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 no he was on RCA proper. But what was it about those artists, especially with UGK? I think for, I didn't sign any of those. I can't take credit for signing any of them. But I think a lot of it was, like I said, I think a lot of it was seeing sales figures. I think a lot of it was understanding that, but it couldn't be that alone, right? Mm-hmm. So then we get, an, we get an indication that there is a buzz around a certain artist. And I would literally call a record store and say, so you have this artist named so-and-so. How is he selling? How is she selling? It was always a he, though. How is he selling? And then whoever was running the local record store would give me a sense of what, what was going on there. And if it sounded promising, I would then say, can you please put me in touch with his manager? And then it would kind of go from there. But UGK, um, how did UGK come to us? I don't remember. But everybody had it couldn't simply, you, it couldn't simply be data, which is different from now, because a lot of artists, I think, now can get signed purely off of data. Right. It was data-driven, but then it was also talent you okay. know and you know there was something so unique god rest his soul pimp c about pimp and about bun and about what they were presenting now we had the ghetto boys from texas as well right mm-hmm. but ugk i don't know i just remember the first time i heard them they felt really new and fresh but dirty and grimy in a way that i really appreciated right, right. you know um so it was probably a combination of the two well this is what i always ask anrs when they come on the show can you name three acts that got away that you really w- that you had a chance to sign or that you had like a, a sort of buzz on before they got became a thing and they went elsewhere um well, everybody's going to tell you Wu-Tang because we all had the demo. But there's no way I was going to be able to sign them. Okay. Um, DOS effects were at my house four days a week. And Yikes. I didn't get to sign them. Yeah. House of Pain, I was friends with Mugs from mm-hmm. back in the Cypress Hill days. Um, Wu-Tang, Gravediggers, I wanted to sign. I wasn't able to sign. But the funny thing about the House of Pain story is that, again, I was friends with Muggs and I had the demo. And now the thing that was really frustrating to Clive Calder, the owner of Jive Records, was that Das Effects and House of Pain went pop. Now, before summertime, none of Jive's hip-hop 
artists went pop, mm-hmm. right? I think that, um, oh my God, what, what's that little boy group? They did a song. Another Bad Creation. It was five little boys. Oh, I I'm bugging that I'm not remembering. Anyway, they had a song about Kiss, and that was the first. I feel like that was the first number one Billboard song for. Um, oh, oh, I high, like five. high five, high five, that's oh, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 the kissing game. Yeah. So uh, it really got under Clive's skin that I wanted to sign DOS Effects and I wanted to ha- sign House of Pain, and they were they were big pop hits. And so after House of Pain, after Jump Around came out, he said, you know, he's, he's South African, Sophia. Come down to my office. Do you do you still have the, the the House of Pain demo? And I said, yeah. And so, in his mind, when I played the demo, the you know mm-hmm. the noise, right? I always say that Muggs was kind of the um, the 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 next generation of uh, the Bomb Squad, Pu- right? Enemy, in terms yeah. of bringing the no noise, um, that. That he he was convinced that when I had played him the demo original demo that that sound wasn't in the demo, but it was. And in fact, when this I talked, sound, that's not it. It is. It's not. It is. It is. All right, we Brent, will have ar- again? we will have arguments. All right, so the big debate is Prince get off. Right? Here's the deal. So and that's not Prince's voice. Is it's Rosie Gaines? We, we've been having that. I what? didn't know. That I didn't know. What okay, so Muggs and them keep saying that it's Junior Walker and the All Star. But I I when distorted nah. And so what are we they will saying? Never, but what are they saying that it is? They're saying that it's Junior Walker and the All Stars. Uh I forget the name of the song. But okay. I'm still maintaining that it's Prince's get off intro. <laughs> So essentially, when I went back to, so I played it for Clive, and he was like, oh, damn it. And when I went back to Muggs, I said, how close is this to the version, the demo version to the one that got on the radio? And he said, it's the version that got on the radio. There's virtually no distance between. So you're the saying demo. that if they lost the Yelp scream or horn line, <laughs> that you guys would have signed it? Like that was no, going to scare no, away? No, what he said, what Clive was saying was, when he when House of Pain went jump around became a big pop hit, he was so frustrated that he hadn't let me sign it. And he said, Sophia, when you play me the demo, that sound was not in there. Oh, Do you see what I'm saying? Right. So right. he was like, Do you still oh, have that? That could have made a difference. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. So wait, at this point, had you started the relationship with Will yet? No. 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 Okay. That's no. why you said you had okay. summer ninety three. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So okay. Well that is weird. Of all the label like Jive was just not a label that signed any member of the Woo, like not even Inspected Deck. <laughs> so my guess is they were too expensive. Huh. Really? My guess. Yeah. Good for you. So you well, guys neither, were. But neither, neither did Tommy Boy. Yeah, but uh, oh, they already messed up. Yeah, but they they had they had <laughs> a chance. Right. Right. So oh, that's the Prince Rakeem. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just catching up on so the series. So budget wise, budget wise, Jive really didn't have a. They were. We were. We were a scrappy little independent, and we were. We had to be really competitive in other ways. That is so weird because I, at least with the look of it, and the ads that you guys purchased, and the artists that you represented, I was always. I never looked at you guys as a Tommy Boy underling or. 
even a roughhouse boutique label like I considered you guys absolutely super major no I think that we were I think we were major major players but that had to do with the fact that everything else other than big advances compensated for that right so I'm I I was competing for hieroglyphics that was a competitive deal well I can't offer as much as a major label can but what can I offer well look at our roster right uh-huh. and what people need to know is that talent can be an amazing talent magnet. So when we can talk about the fact, so those boys are from, from the Bay. They're from the East Oakland. And mm-hmm. we have Spice One, and we have Too Short, and we have Pooh, right? And we, so, they, so there is also Pooh. thinking about who your label mates are going to be, and that's how, we were, that's how we were able to be competitive. But it wasn't by spending a ton of money. I see. Wait, I, I got to ask, since you're associated with them, what, what effect do you think that that battle with Saphir had on their momentum. Uh, Souls of Mischief did a infamous battle against Saphir in uh, on Bay Area radio, mm-hmm. and all I know is that that's all we listened to. It, to me, it was the equivalent of if you watch Kill Bill when. Oh my God! I was just going to oh say that's when, so bizarre with Lucy Liu. Yes, like oh just my that God, whole. That which, so which, which which that which came into my head. Well, no, no, no. I mean, d- d- both battles. Actually, I was thinking of when when Uma Thurman just took out the crazy 88s. Okay. Yes, like, in the bar. Yeah. Just oh, one so they one. got taken out. That's what yeah. I, okay. So I, I wouldn't say taken, taken out, out okay. but I will say that Saphir just won, like, it's four of them, and they had casual. So it was, like, really eight of them versus one of him, mm-hmm. and, and he just took them all <laughs> one by one, mm-hmm. and we just never. I know that that had an effect on Tariq. Mm-hmm. Tariq was like, I have to be that good where I can take out 10 MCs, <laughs> like that sort of thing. But, I, I mean, did that? do you think that affected their momentum? Or their and their Or, yeah, their confidence at all? Or was it just like, eh, whatever? Uh, if it did, I didn't see any sign of that. And also, you know, being around those guys, you know, Kung Fu, we say sharpen your blade every day. Mm-hmm. And at the time when I was around them, and they're 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. Right. They sharpened their blades all day, every day. I mean, to be around them was to hear them freestyle more than you would hear them talk. Right. So, yes, is, is there this epic battle and, you know, Saphir is, is dominant? Absolutely. But I don't think that made them kind of shrink and go, oh, my God, we're, we're not good anymore. I, to this day, I don't think that they, um, that they have any doubt as to, as to their skills. Real, okay. Well, they're still going strong. Yeah. And I kind of wish Opio didn't cut his hair for the oh, second record. Oh, Lord, you say do. it again. Say it again, Amir. Dude, that was mm, like, mm, mm. when yeah. he cut his hair, I was just like, oh, man, they lost their angle. Like, and me, because I was like, where's he at? I can't, which one is he now? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> which one is he? <laughs> for real, I was like, ah, Opio, come on, dude. Like, ah. He did a beautiful hair. He did. Come on. Okay, so I feel silly. Because as much traveling as I do, and as many Airbnbs that I stay in, because that's the only way I travel, I really have never considered my own space. I mean, think about it. What if you can make money for your next vacation while you're on vacation? And I know what you're thinking. You're like, my house is just not fancy enough. I just can't do the things. You're sleeping on your space. I'm sleeping on my space. Yes, I'm talking to myself. And I really don't even have to use my whole place. I could just Airbnb a room. I know how this works. Because again, I use Airbnb, duh. I mean, just think about it. 
Most of us that use Airbnb are only using it for 50% of its power. We're spending the money, but we're not making the money. What if we could do both? Whoa! Mind-blowing. And your home really might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hi, it's Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. All right, so I'll admit when I first saw Protect Your Neck. Come on, baby, baby, come on. That was a little too low budget for me. I saw, <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> no, no, I oh, saw. Oh, really? It. The time code? I saw. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I seen it on like a local, like we had our own local uh, AJ Shine from WKDU, and and Philly had his own like uh, show, The Avenue, on Drexel University, and he would show it, and it was just like, ah, this is so cheap. I mean, I got it though, but. I, I kind of feel like people have recontextualized and and sort of <laughs> sort of sort of the way that people talk about Prince's Dirty Mind. Oh, like yeah. I was there from the beginning, yeah, like yeah. that sort of thing. I was like, were you really? So for you, with the with the early Wu Tang, like you were truly aboard and you knew that this was going to be a thing. Yeah, and I also think that there's a little bit of civic pride going on there because simultaneously, if I remember correctly. The West Coast was on the come up. Yeah. Oh, no right? doubt. And so there was a sense of like New York. New York. We got this shit, right? Yeah, like we, you know, it's it from started New York. here. That's, That's right. right. And then you have nine guys <laughs> and they're from Staten Island. And you're like, how could, does anybody care about Staten Island? And they, and they did this thing. And I think that it wasn't, look, we you could talk about Riz's beats all day long, and I remember what it felt like to me was I I, I think it it impacted me on so many different levels. So at that point, I'm considering myself a proud New Yorker, even I, even though I've been there for less here for less than a decade. But it was so New York, right? Like I feel like Riz's beats, and he describes them as grimy. Were this really 
unflinching look at the dirty underbelly of the city. And I and then and then you have their rhymes and he somehow harnesses nine guys on what we used to call a posse track, right? So now if we made that record, you would fly somebody the beat and they'd send you their 8 or their 16, mm-hmm. right? But but back in the day, they were all in the studio. They're all sleeping on Riz's floor in Staten Island, right? And so you have this kind of you have this osmosis happening and it just felt huge that's how it felt it felt in terms of volume of how many MCs there were but also the fact that I'd never heard beats like Riz's before I was like oh shit what is he doing and I I am far from the musicologist you are and I could never deconstruct it the way that you can but the A&R in you wasn't thinking like I would think that yeah A&R's are thinking fight or flight I gotta find the next big thing to keep and justify my job and my position. So my first thought would be, oh, this is way too lo-fi. Like, this is not going to make gonna it. It's not going to be on the radio. Right. Oh. Like, that, your, your inner A&R wasn't already tainted and taken over your conscious? Well, what, the, what tainted it was the deal that he asked for. So none of us could sign Wu-Tang Clan. Right. Right? So it was already off the table. But it, in the same way that the message hit me viscerally, it hit me viscerally. And remember, I met them really soon thereafter. Mm-hmm. So it is one thing to hear the record. It is another thing to see that really grainy, lo-fi, time code $5,000 video <laughs> where they're not even, I don't even think they're even all in that video. And then to meet them. And I think because I had the privilege of being in proximity to them really, really early on before the first album came out, I, it, was, it was really, really clear to us, certainly in New York, all of us knew like, oh, this shit's going to blow. It, it, it's it's going to blow. Not necessarily because we thought Protect Your Neck was a commercial song. Mm-hmm. None of us thought this is like summertime, right? right. Um, but it just felt like this swell. Uh, you know, I say in my memoir... Um, there, there's this really great Victor Hugo quote: "On résiste à l'invasion des armées, mais on, ré, on ne résiste pas à l'invasion des idées," which has been kind of loosely translated as um, something like "you you can't fight an idea whose time has come." Right. And so, but literally translated as, "You can resist an invasion of armies, you cannot resist an invasion of ideas." But in my mind, they were both. <laughs> <laughs> they were this army Synergy, yeah, it came at the same who time. had these incredible ideas. And that was all Riz's vision. Look, he couldn't have done it without Wu-Tang. But it was, you know, he was the abbot and that was his creative genius. So was he the first member that you met? How did you start working with the organization and what were... So heard the Wu-Tang demo, loved it. I became a Wu-Vangelist. I played it for anybody that would listen. I was like, listen to this, listen to this. Listen, listen to my shitty little yellow walk, sports walkman. Um, I missed those. Google it. Uh, and then I uh, and, but couldn't sign them, but I was a huge fan. And then the Gravediggers demo came across my desk. Mm-hmm. And the Gravediggers, he wasn't asking for the same non-exclusive, so that was something that I could definitely try to sign. And I arranged to meet him... Uh, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the weather, what I wore, what I ate, where we ate. Like, I remember so much about it. And in that first interaction, of course, we talked about the gravediggers and the parameters of the deal and the creative vision, but we also talked about Wu-Tang. But you know this as well as I do. When you get into a conversation with RZA, um, 
it's never just about music. Right. And, you know, I, I, I've been saying for a while that to me, RZA is the Bruce Lee of music. And when I say that, I mean that Bruce Lee was, took a lot of different traditions. Bruce Lee grew up studying Wing Chun, right? And that is a very traditional Kung Fu form. But he studied many other forms, and then he made his own form called uh, Jeet Kune Do. And I, I kind of feel like that's what RZA did, as, as have many producers. Like, kind of take all of these, and not disrespect any of them, honor them, all of these different musical and sonic traditions, and then to blend them and to make his own thing. Now, we, again, many producers have done that. Why I call him the Bruce Lee of hip-hop is because he is additionally a philosopher, and I do not, I cannot think of other artists or producers that I think are true philosophers. And this stems from an intense intellectual, cultural, and spiritual curiosity. So Riz is the guy that has, like many artists, traveled the world a number of times over. But he is also the guy that doesn't go to whatever city and whatever country and whatever corner of the world and say, you know, uh, just just find me the nearest um, McDonald's so I can eat food that I'm comfortable with. He will eat that food, right? He will find out where is the place of prayer and where is the faith here. What is the language? What is the culture? And he will immerse himself in that. And I think it really comes out in everything that he does now that that's expanded far beyond music. So uh, he was the first one that I met. And... I, I describe it as being, you know, the first time I met Rizzo was like going through many different chambers. And then after I met him, I met all the rest of them. And the last one that I met was Dirty God Rest His Soul. How was it navigating his life? There's two people on earth that I've met both of their tour managers uh, with the Roots organization, uh, my boy Silbert. Uh, when we were interviewing him, and my first question was, so what qualifications do you have um, that you feel would be beneficial to us? And he said one thing. He said, he says, I've been Public Enemies tour manager for the last 20 years. Flavor Flav has never been late wow. or missed a show. Wow. Whoa. wow. I was like, hired. you're hired. hired. <laughs> wow. You're hired. hired. So w- what is the amount of of Jedi mind tricks <laughs> that you have to do to keep them organized? So I could never say that they were never late working with me at all or that they didn't miss a show. But to talk about Dirty first, I call him Ason. I call him A. Wow. Um, you know, managing old Dirty Bastard can, can certainly seem oxymoronic. But I think that I did as good a job as anybody could. Um, look, Asan had an addictive personality. There's no doubt about it. Right. Uh, he was addicted to sex. He was addicted to alcohol, and he became addicted to drugs. But when I managed him, he didn't even smoke weed. Mm. Like, I remember him being like, Beth, get that shit out of here. I hate the smell of that. So I knew him before he um, did drugs. Mm. Uh, but he did drink a lot, and he did love women. And so there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of damage control, um, as you can imagine. But the thing that I want people to know about Asan mm-hmm. is that he was so smart. He was. He was so smart. And 
he had such a creative vision, but he was also intellectually very smart, and he was really, really good with people. He was so winsome, and he could charm anybody when he wanted to. He was super protective of me, um, and he was dead loyal. And I keep quoting my friend Julius Ono, who's a Nigerian-American director who, who made this movie earlier this summer called Loose, and it's about a transracial adoptee. Um, and he said in a Q&A that, I think that every person in this world should be granted access to the full spectrum of humanity. And I think that any of us who live on the margins are not granted access to the full spectrum of humanity. I think rappers in particular are not granted access to the full spectrum of humanity. And so what I try to communicate in my memoir is who were these artists to me? Mm-hmm. So I am far from a Wu-Tang expert. I could not tell you what, al- what sequence the albums came out in, what the names of all the, uh, the solo, none of that. The samples, any of that. The only thing that I am an expert on, and I am an expert on this, is who they are as men, mm-hmm. people, to me. And I think that I have a unique lens into the Wu-niverse because of who I am, but also who they allowed me to be and how they let me come into their world. And I think that speaks volumes about them. I also manage, so I manage all three three-letter members of Wu-Tang, <laughs> ODB, RZA, and GZA. <laughs> I managed RZA, um, what I call his extracurricular activity. So I did not manage him as an MC, and I did not manage him as a producer, but I managed him as a composer, and then his beginnings, the tra- his transition into Hollywood. Um, he, Kill Bill. So for Kill Bill Wait, and yeah. all that stuff. Yes. So his first, his first gig composing was Ghost Dog. That yeah. was not me. Uh, that was Nemo, who was very close. I believe he's Jim Jarmusch. His nephew and Nemo brought uh, RZA into uh, to to Jim, and then I kind of picked it up from there. So it was Kill Bill, and it was Blade, and I believe he did Soul Plane. Um, so we did that stuff together, and he had already started writing and directing. But you know, the thing that I say about RZA is. Um, he is truly living his childhood dream. So when I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a fashion designer. I never thought that I'd be doing this, and I love my life. But Riza, as a child, growing up one of, I believe, 11 children of a single mother, growing up in the projects of Staten Island in Brooklyn, um, he watched kung fu movies. And he imagined and dreamt that he would one day direct and now he's directing kung fu movies. Right. And he is writing them. And he is starring in them. And I, I actually don't know anybody else who had this vision. And he is truly a visionary from when he was a child. So managing RZA was a delight. Managing Jizza was also incredible. I would say that Jizza was my favorite client because, um, and you know Jizza like mm-hmm. I do, he's incredibly low-key and he is so gracious. And he is so magnanimous, and he doesn't want to be recognized, and he doesn't want to be famous. He doesn't want to be any of those things. And he, he is so um, kind, and I really love managing him because he allowed me to transition him into lecturing. And not every client lets you do that, right? So somebody might say, I've thought about it, so, but I don't really want to do it because there's this thing I do, and I'm so comfortable, and I've been doing it for decades, and I'm getting paid, and I know how to do this. Whereas lecturing is very, very different. You, you're basically standing naked. There are no pyrotechnics. You don't have a hype man. There's no DJ. There's no lights. There's no sound, and, you're, and your audience, they're not drunk. They're not high, right? They're just all <laughs> sitting there, and they're looking at you, and you're standing at a podium, and you are speaking. And literally, the first place he um, lectured was Harvard. That's the Korean in me. And literally the first words out of his mouth were, I'm so nervous. And that's Jizza. What? Yeah. 
He said that? Yeah. And you know what? The same I thought thing. it would be AOPs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? I did the same thing with Joey Badass. And same, he wow. said the exact same thing. What was the, I'm just curious. What was, what was just his first lecture on? So he spoke about um, his love of science. You know, he, he like uh, Riz, is deeply intellectually curious. He spoke about his love of science. He spoke about his, um, his inspiration and his creative process. Can, wow. you, can you talk about real quick in, in the prologue? You, I, I had a moment. I had a moment where I was jealous of you in describing the relationship with Wu-Tang because of a situation that happened with Method Man and the guy Jamal. And I was jealous because as a woman who's been in the industry for years, we all know what it's like. You know, you're telling beautiful stories, but at some points, being that woman in the room can be adversarial. No it can be dismissive. Toxic masculinity. Yes. And Disrespectful? Then, no question. In that moment of no protection, right? Yeah, yeah. So... I don't know if you want to reiterate that story, but sure. also in a way, I also wanted you to tell the the opposite of that story when it wasn't that protection there with Method Man. Right. I mean, so when I when I started doing A&R, I was insecure around it, right? I'm thinking I'm a Korean-Canadian French lit major, and uh, do I really deserve this job of being a gatekeeper and an arbiter of a culture again that is not mine, right? And so, but, it, but the way that hip-hop embraced me was really fortifying and made, gave me a lot more confidence, but no, nothing more than when Wu-Tang claimed me. So it was very, very early on. I might have met Meth once before. I go to the studio to see them. And he says, Sophie, you got to see, I just got my video in um, for Method Man. And so he takes me to the back lounge, whisks me past everybody, takes me to the back lounge, and he sits me down and he plugs in the tape and he stands on the wall, doesn't sit with me, stands against the wall to watch me because he wants to see my response to the video. And sitting next to the television facing me, so this gentleman is not watching the screen, he's looking at me as meth is, is this guy Jamal. So the video plays and I'm super excited. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, because I'm already in love with meth. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so the video plays and as soon as the video ends, he looks at me and he says, where are you from? Now anybody, any person of color will tell you that's a loaded question. If you ask a white person that, they're going to be like, oh, I'm from Columbus, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. No or, or, or my, you know, my parents are whatever, but this is, this is a loaded question. So I am a petite Asian woman in the inner, inner sanctum of, Wu-Tang, of Wu-Tang's world. And it is clear to him, and I could see the calculations, it is clear to him, I'm not sleeping with any of those boys. Mm-hmm. He also knows that I don't manage any of them at this point. I don't A&R any of them. So who is this? And how did she get in? Mm-hmm. And again, to this day, when I'm around Wu-Tang, I am almost always the only woman in the room. Mm-hmm. And that's a very privileged place where I sit. So he keeps – and so I, I feign innocence and I say, well, what are you asking me? Where are you from? Well, I don't really know what that means. Where are you from? And then I broke and I said, okay, well, if you're asking where I was born, I was born in Vancouver. My parents are Korean. If you're asking where my parents are from, they're from, you know, Korea. If you're asking where I live, but before I could even finish answering this in this very methodical way, meth just flew in between us. Now, I don't know if you've ever met him in person. Mm-hmm. He is 6'4". Mm-hmm. And he is Goodness. notoriously the nicest with his hands of the clan. Mm, what? <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, no, no. Oh, he, boy. No, he can... They can all throw the fuck down, yeah. but meth and ghost, forget about it. So he flies in between us and he just expands like the Hulk and he was like that's Sophie Chang and she's down with Wu-Tang she's from Shaolin motherfucker don't you ever (laughs) who the fuck are you to ask her where she's from don't you ever disrespect her again and I was like oh my god 
my God. Now, nobody had ever defended me like this right. before. Ever. What a moment. And I was, was so this, jealous. <laughs> it was just this extraordinary moment. But so the demonstration was amazing. But to deconstruct it, and what I think I want people to understand is he knew exactly what the fuck that guy was saying. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? He totally understood that it was there was there was a racial subtext to it and there was a gender subtext to it, mm-hmm. right? He didn't give a shit where I was from because essentially he wasn't asking a question. He was saying, what the, the fuck, fuck are you? And what are you right, doing here? Who the fuck are what you? What the fuck are you doing here? Because you don't belong here. Right. I belong here. Mm-hmm. You don't belong here. And, you know, again, wanting to tell people about the humanity of Wu-Tang. Now, Meth has known this guy for, I'm sure, a long-ass time. Mm-hmm. This might be the second or third time he's met me. <laughs> and his feeling was like, nah, B, we're not fucking doing that because she's ours. And what I say about Wu-Tang is that, look, I had several friendships in hip-hop and, and enduring ones that I have to this day before Wu-Tang. I was embraced and I was welcomed. But Wu-Tang claimed me that's special so it's a thing that you're talking about amir right like uh, 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 so what i'm saying is that everybody knew that they were going to be huge and there were hordes and hordes and hordes of people surrounding them and for whatever reason they just went like this you're coming with us we're keeping her right here and i feel that way to this day that i will never ever leave that breast pocket and can i give people let me make official right now Uh laia me bill sugar steve and other Bill and Fonte are claiming you. Oh, I appreciate that. That's, <laughs> that's beautiful. We'll, we'll protect you. Uh, can I also just make a point to FYI? Because some people might be thinking, oh, she's, she's the Asian woman in the clique, so she's the one that brought the awareness to all the culture. No, no, no. Can you clear that up? Oh, yeah, no. And first of all, when I say that I'm a, I was in love with, meth is the platonic love of my life. Yeah. Uh, because oh, yeah, yeah, he's no. been married forever. Yeah and, yeah, and his wife, Tamika, is just this gorgeous, luminous creature that I adore. No, he's the platonic love of my life. No, 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 no. In fact... No, they grew up watching kung fu movies. It was their escape, but they also, you know, the the themes of brotherhood and loyalty and defiance and oppression really resonated with them. And so, again, going back to it, I'm a white, I'm a yellow girl growing up in a white world. I want to be white. I come to New York. I get, you know, I get into the hip hop world, and I understand that there's another way to be, and that is proud of who you are. And then Wu Tang embraces me. And it is the first time that I truly see the beauty and the profundity and the power of my culture because I see it through their eyes. That's amazing. Because they introduced me to John Wu and Chai Yun Fat. Wow. This is the love of my life. (laughs) This is the love of my life. Um, And kung fu movies. So before that, and before I w- then, none of the folklore. You weren't Saturday afternoons it. None watching. None of it because it was total cultural denial for me. Wow! Right? It was cultural denial and it was cultural rebellion. And so I start watching kung fu movies with my girlfriend Maria Ma, who's Taiwanese American. We're like, let's study kung fu. <laughs> so we go around and we're looking. We're looking at all these different schools, and then we hear there's a Shaolin monk teaching kung fu, and that's that's like hearing that uh, Questlove is teaching giving drum lessons right <laughs> or it's like fucking hearing that tiger woods is going to teach you golf down the street we're like what so we hunt him down and we find him and that we go in there we talk to him he speaks mandarin she speaks mandarin he speaks no english i don't speak mandarin and i go home that night and i call my parents and i said i met the man i'm going to marry today i knew empirically empirically and absolutely and then I left the music business. I stopped managing dirty hard right Wait, out of the music you business. you said he's a shaolin monk and they yeah. said 
they said they were like, hang on a second. My dad's like, hang on a second. He looks up. He's like, Shaolin monks can marry. I don't know what the fuck <laughs> reference. I don't know what reference. Book, but Bob Shik Chang, God rest his soul, was right there with his crazy daughter. And so uh, I I leave the music business. I have I don't even think about it. I run. Um, his name is Shri Yanming. I run Yanming's temple. He's a thirty fourth generation Shaolin monk. Mm, he has wow. a vision that he wants to replicate the Shaolin temple in America. I introduce him to Wu Tang. So this I did. I introduce an actual Shaolin monk to Wu Tang. I also was the person who orchestrated and planned and produced the tour that brought Riza to Shaolin Temple, and he was the first artist in 1,500 years to ever perform in front of Shaolin Temple. Also took him to Wu-Tang Mountain, where the abbot of Wu-Tang Clan met the abbot of Wu-Tang Mountain. And so I created those historical moments. But had it not been for Wu-Tang Clan, I wouldn't have the two extraordinary children that I do right now. What? I wouldn't have an almost a 25-year practice of Shaolin Kung Fu that I did before I came here, and that's why I was so hungry. <laughs> so I am, I am eternally grateful to Wu-Tang because they brought me back to myself in the most essential and important and critical way. And so in going back to myself, again, in going through these chambers with them, they, you know, they brought me around to my own heritage. And you know what's extraordinary is that Meth said this to me. He said, you know, in a funny way, we kind of introduced you back to Asian culture. And I was like, how? He's so astute. I have, I, I, Meth is like my son. He's a, he's a uh, Pisces. So he is super in tune with energy and he's r- deeply empathetic. And he knew that in the same way that he knew when Jamal said, where are you from? He understood that this is a hostile state. This is this is not a question. It's a hostile statement. Wow, man. We need meth on the that's show. that's <laughs> no, stop playing. Of course, yes, Method Man, we want you on the show, but I think Laia, stop gushing. No, any Wu Tang, I say Riz too. If we get Method Man, <laughs> if, if we if we get Method Man booked on the show, she's going to come dressed like have she you did met for him the Lenny Kravitz episode. No, this is not the one. No, this is not the one. Have you met him in person, Meth? Yeah, like once, I think. Yeah. So you I have interviewed, and yeah. Riz is amazing. All right, Riz is we, an amazing interview. We got to have Method on just to see Laia dressed up like she did for the Lenny Kravitz episode. I really knew that he has a wife, and I'm just trying to bring Lenny back to the other side. Anyway. Wait, isn't Lenny married? So, no, no, no. Uh-uh. And she a little older. If she got a girlfriend a little older than Zoe, you know. Anyway, and she ain't been in this color in a long time. So. Hello. <laughs> sorry, I'm just joking. I'm, hey, sorry. Anyway, Sophia, we we can talk forever. <laughs> we can talk forever, but we we have to wrap it up. <laughs> Though I really appreciate you coming on the show and 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 sharing your story, and opening the door for all my Asian girlfriends who are now managers. Shout out to Jenny Azumi, all my Korean Yay, girlfriends. Yes, shout out to Jenny Azumi and yep. Don White. Like, yeah, yes. I'm doing it. Thank yeah. you. Damn, I forgot my own manager. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, your manager's Asian? I got nine managers. Yeah, Asian manager. woman. Yeah. Yes. What's her name? Don. She, she even taught me how to drive. Oh my God! Yes. We <laughs> taught you how to drive. Yay! Yay! <laughs> you didn't teach me how to drive. Okay. Go on, taught me how to drive. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank anyway, you. thank you, thank you for having me. I was so excited for this conversation because I was like, your mind and your historical knowledge, like that's kind of your left brain, you know, <laughs> like that Wikipedia. But then there's also this amazing insane creative talent and all and there just aren't that many people like that so thank you well i thank you see i took a compliment guys yeah, Ooh, it hurt first. though didn't it it was hard <laughs> it hurt <laughs> I, <know. laughs> 
I'm in therapy now. I'm learning he's how to take. Out and he's breaking out. He's breaking out. I'm learning how to take I start sweating. I wanted to run out the door right now. Like, all right, that's a wrap. Quest Love Supreme. No, well, thank you very much for coming on the show, ladies and gentlemen. That's another episode of Quest Love Supreme. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sophia. Can we go take kung fu? And check yeah. out her, her audio book. Yes. The baddest bitch in the room. Amazing. Exclusively Thank on you. Audible. Thank Exclusively you. on Audible. Yay. All right. On behalf of Sugar Steve, uh, Laia, and Boss Bill, and Unpaid Bill, and Fine Piccolo. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> this is another episode of Quest Love Supreme. We'll see you on the next go round. Thank you. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroesfilm.com to get tickets now. Hi, it's Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So, check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cash back isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC.